Hello and welcome to Dog Talk with me, your host, Nick Benger, the ultimate podcast to help you take the next step in your dog training journey by learning from the best experts from around the world. What's up, guys? I hope you like the new podcast intro, trying new things, going up in the world. Today, we're talking to Nancy Tucker. Nancy is a worldwide speaker. She's also an instructor at the Fenzy Dog Sports Academy and a regular contributor to the Whole Dog Journal. So she's kicking ass on so many levels. She gives talks on dog training and behavior, but not only that, she gives talks on client communications for dog professionals. So she is a hugely interesting person. I first met her at the IAABC conference in Manchester, England. We got on really well, so I'm looking forward to hearing what you think about the podcast. And on that note, please join the Facebook group, Dog Talk with Nick Benger podcast discussion group. Let me know what you think, ask any questions that you have, and hopefully Nancy will take a moment to answer them. I'll do my best to answer them, so please join us over there. And without me nattering on anymore, let's get into it. So what have you learned since having Benny, your puppy border terrier? Yeah, well, my puppy is a year old now. And um, when I got him as a puppy, I got him at nine and a half weeks, uh, nine and a half weeks old. And I hadn't had a puppy <laughs> in about 40 years. So I didn't remember um, what it was like. And, and I teach, you know, I teach people uh, what to do <laughs> when they get a new puppy. Um, I know all about getting new puppies, but I hadn't actually lived it. So um, that was an eye-opening experience and what it's like to, to actually live with a puppy again. And it, uh, it actually brought me to tears a couple of times because it, it's hard. It's really hard. Um, even as a trainer, you know, to, to live with a young puppy and, and, um, to meet those needs and that level of energy. And, and it can be frustrating at times. So that's what I've learned. I've learned to, uh, to empathize even more with my, uh, my puppy clients. So was there a moment that really brought that home? <laughs> there were many. <laughs> um, <laughs> there, there were I many. <laughs> I think that um, uh, maybe not a moment, but one particular aspect of, um, of, of having a puppy around the house is that uh, you need to meet their needs. And that's something that I think uh, a lot of people may misinterpret, you know, when, uh, when a puppy is um, seriously biting or when he is um, going into that state of uh, kind of uber zoomies, you know, where they're, they're, they're what I call um, hangry <laughs> and tired. Uh, it's kind of a perfect storm of emotions and, and, uh, and, and something that they're experiencing where they are running around, they're barking, they're jumping up and biting. I mean, really biting. Um, and usually they are a combination of tired and hungry um, and, you know, their needs are just not being met at that moment. And a lot of people uh, see that as an opportunity to teach them discipline when really they need to just have their needs met. And I think that that is one of the most important things that, that I really learned, um, that how real that can be and how, how difficult that can be to handle because they can get pretty 
uh, for the lack of a better world, they can get pretty word. They can get pretty wild. You know, it's, I, I don't know if you mm. know what I'm describing here. Oh, certainly. I mean, I can remember, I haven't had a puppy for 10 years. My dog literally just, my first dog literally just turned 10 yesterday. Oh, um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So hey, happy it's, been a, <laughs> it's been a long time for me as well. But I remember doing puppy training with someone that wanted a very intensive training. So I was there almost every day mm-hmm. and I was there for an hour and it was a puppy Doberman. And I was just like, wow, this is such hard work. You know, I go <laughs> in and he's like hanging off my arm. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I know I, I get, I've had a little taste of that because thankfully I was always able to leave. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It was a struggle, but I could. <laughs> um, whereas with a puppy owner, you, you have to live with that 24 hours a day. You don't get to have the breaks that you do it when you're just going in for a consultation and you get to leave. Exactly. And they can really bring you to your knees, you know, and when you've described just now that, you know, that the dog is, that the puppy was kind of hanging off your sleeve. Um, I, I'd had, I'd had clients in the past call me for a puppy consult saying, you know, they're afraid, they suspect that they've adopted this, this really aggressive puppy and that he's going to turn into this really dangerous dog, you know, and I would just think, uh, a puppy that age, you know, chances are he's not aggressive. It's just puppy biting. And I, let me go teach them what to do with puppy biting. And it wasn't until I really experienced these moments myself where I'm literally climbing on, on the couch trying to get away from my dog um, because he's he's just, uh, uh, you know, unstoppable. And and when I experienced that for myself, I, I remembered these conversations with clients in the past where I thought, the dog is not aggressive. Of course, he wasn't aggressive, but the behavior looks like um, a dog who's kind of lost his marbles <laughs> for a minute. So again, a lot of empathy for clients now. And, I, and I'm not sure that I'm ready to do it again <laughs> for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> that really resonates with me. That's a common story that I hear. You know, I'll get a phone call or I'll go to do a puppy, puppy consultation. And it's, especially with bigger breeds, because I think people worry more when they have a big dog that is biting them loads. Very true. Then they're really starting to worry that, oh, my God, am I going to end up with the aggressive Doberman or the aggressive Rottweiler? Yeah. Or whatever it is. Um, and and that's very nerve-wracking because they don't want to be that person. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, that, and I can completely relate to that. And depending on who they consult with, they could end up with advice that um, leans more towards more discipline, you know, really controlling that puppy. Um, whereas, you know, often what the puppy needs is sleep. I can, you know, I think that I can attest to, um, to that uh, little bit of knowledge that puppies need a lot of rest and we often don't provide that for them. And sometimes they kind of need to be... Uh, for lack of a better word, again, kind of forced into that situation where we really need to put them in a situation where they can nap immediately and, and for a little while at least. Um, and uh, I forget where I was going with this, but... Um, was it the biting that you struggled with the most? Um, yes. Um, and, and, you know, the house training, when, when you think you've got it under control... <laughs> And um, and you don't, and not for a minute, and uh, and that can be really frustrating too, um, because you think you know better, especially as a trainer, you think you know better, and there shouldn't be any accidents, and and that that brings me to to a story I had 
uh, I have about some of my early years when I was training, um, doing group training for the local shelter, uh, group classes. And in one of the puppy classes, I had the, this one student with her puppy who always seemed to have, uh, I, I call them yes, but um, yes, but clients, everything that you say to them, they, they answer with yes, but. Um, <laughs> That's a great phrase. I like that. <laughs> and um, everything that I was, all the advice that I was giving her about house training, uh, you know, when we would meet on a weekly basis, she would come back to me and say, yeah, it's not working. It's not working. And my answer to her was always along the lines of, if you do what I tell you to do, it should work. And in my mind, I was thinking, so you are obviously not doing what I'm telling you to do. Obviously, you are making mistakes. Um, and I kept kind of putting the responsibility back on her. So here we are at the end of the puppy class. Um, I've got her puppy on leash. You know, by now he's about 16 weeks. He's a little uh, miniature schnauzer. And I've got him on, on the end of the leash and I'm talking to her and I'm, I'm pontificating. You know, I'm telling her again what she needs to be doing to, to help house train her dog. And she's just looking exhausted. Um, she's looking like somebody who has a 16 week old puppy. Um, uh, and as I'm talking to her, she sort of looks down and I see that I see this look come over her face and, and I follow her gaze. And there is her puppy pooping on my shoe. <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling you, if you're keeping an eye on your dog, 100%, like I'm telling you, and the dog is pooping on my shoe. So she just kind of felt validated, I guess, at that moment. And it got me off my high horse really quickly. And I, I've never, uh, I've never pontificated again. That is hilarious. I've never had that. That's a hell of a story. Um, oh, wow. So how has having Benny and going for it yourself changed how you respond in those situations? Oh, man, with a lot of sympathy and a lot of empathy. Um, and, you know, while I was going through it, I think it, it was it really helped to be able to tell my clients, you know what, I am living this right now. I have slept two hours <laughs> in three days. Um, and it helps them understand that what they're going through, first of all, is normal. And that even a trainer is struggling with it helps a lot. Um and that it's temporary. You know, we, we forget that it's temporary. When we're living it, we're thinking, oh, what the hell have I gotten myself into? Um, and it, it, it's temporary and we keep working at it. And now that Benny's a year old, I, I'm, I'm so glad he's out of that phase. And um, uh, he's not actually, uh, well, he's 14 months old, so, uh, but he's still you know, technically an adolescent. But um, I don't think he's a very typical adolescent. I think I've lucked out. He's, he's, He's really a good dog considering his age. He's not um, he's not giving us as many challenges as I often see in, in dogs his age. Talking about those kind of like yes, but clients, how do you get compliance with those kind of clients? Because I think that as dog trainers, we really can struggle with that sometimes because when we go for our education, it's so much about training dogs and so little about teaching people a lot of the time that were almost brilliant at training dogs, but beginners at training people. Yeah. So how can you go about guiding those people to making sure they're getting uh, or working towards kind of a reasonable conclusion? Well, I think that um, as trainers, one of our first mistakes really is to focus only on the dog um, without actually listening to what our client needs and what our client really wants out of the situation. It, you know, when we meet a client and they, they explain to us that the problem that they're experiencing, 
we know as trainers what we might need to do to to modify behavior um but we need to we need to really think about you know once we get to know our client we need to think about whether or not our client is ready and willing and able to uh, to do what it is that to implement what it is that that we have in mind so um i think that we need to uh, listen more to what our, our client wants to do and to remember that and as trainers we're we're in, we're running a business we're operating a business so we need to remember that our client um, is the person <laughs> who is holding that leash you know we know um, our focus is on the dog on the well-being of the dog and we forget that the client is the one who is who is you know writing that check at the end of the session so um, I don't know if this is coming across correctly, but I guess what I'm trying to say is that uh, when we talk about getting client compliance, I think that um, cooperation might be a, um, a preferred term instead of compliance and that we need to really listen to what it is that they want, what it is that they're capable of doing and meeting them where they're at. I think a lot of the time, and this this is reflected in how people train dogs as well, that when we aren't getting our way, we think, okay, now I need to give them like an ultimatum. I need to be like, look, you either need to do this or, you know, we can't continue to work together. Yeah. And I'm sure there are times when that is necessary, but there must be so much you can do before you get to that point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. And um, I think that it should be, you know, you hear it's dog before dogma. Um, that we really need to consider the well-being of the dog before uh, dogma or our own kind of rules and and um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Not necessarily rules, but our um, uh, not philosophy either. Um, ah, the word will come to me later. Uh, but I think that we need to look at the situation, meet the dog and the person where they're at, and kind of put aside our desire for perfection in, in behavior. You know, sometimes we don't need to fully train um, a dog to perfection in order to keep a client happy and in order to keep an, uh, a dog happy in his home. So um, I think that that's where we need to, to uh, adjust the way that we approach training when as trainers running a business. I remember um seeing a quote and I, i'll be interested to see what you think of this i think it was steve mann posted it on facebook years ago but it really stuck with me because it kind of resonated with me a bit and i was kind of thinking about it and he said something along the lines of um if a client doesn't follow through then we shouldn't blame the client because that is also that's our responsibility essentially part of our job is to get the client, client cooperation, as you put it. Mm -hmm. Whereas I think a lot of the time, if a, if we get clients that aren't doing the training plan, aren't putting the work in, then we kind of uh, resign that as, well, you know, I've given the information, it's their yeah. duty to follow through with it. How much of a responsibility do you think that we have to motivate people to do the work once we've gone in and given them the information? Yeah, I think that, um, well, I don't know if I can assign an actual percentage to that because there are two sides to, to that coin. And uh, Dr. Chris Pockle, the vet behaviorist out of uh, Portland, Oregon, one of the lines that, that he 
uh, said during a, um, a presentation at a conference several years back stuck with me. Um, and he said, I will work as hard as my client. And he was talking about avoiding burnout, you know, when we can get so frustrated and really upset when, when we see that the dog is not getting the help that they need because our client isn't doing the work. Um, you know, he was speaking about it in that context, but that line has always resonated with me that I will work as hard as my client. On the other hand, what you're saying too is that, um, and I agree with that, how, how much of it is our responsibility if the client isn't, isn't, um, working through the exercises that we gave them. Um, you know, when we're teaching or training a dog and he's not getting it right, we adjust our approach. We, we do it, uh, you know, almost naturally. We do it immediately. We don't um, try to force the dog to do it. We need to adjust the environment or we need to adjust our approach. And I think that uh, not very many of us know how to do that with regards to uh, the human aspect of, of the team, um, you know, to adjust our approach and, and to ask them, simply ask them, um, you know, what is it about this approach that you are finding difficult or, uh, you know, how can we adjust this to make it easier for you? Um, again, I put the emphasis on working with the client and not the dog because uh, that's whose cooperation we need the most. So we really need to listen to them, ask them what they need and listen to them. I think there are like a lot of mixed, uh, like a conflicting views out there on this because, and it seems to me like more of a business decision than anything else. I mean, because once you get to a certain point in business and I think you've, uh, we get to it, but I think you've re kind of reached that recently. I remember you talking about it where you get to the point where you've got say a waiting list of clients and it's almost like, well, look, how much, you know, I'm in a position now where I don't have to continually chase up clients if they're not motivated to do the work. <laughs> so I'm almost spoiled in that if you don't want to put in the work, then that's fine. But someone else will replace you that w does want to put in the work. So it, it seems to me that and sometimes it becomes a business decision um, as to who you work with. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, I, I'm not sure there's a correct answer. Yeah, I think, though, that um, what you're describing is true. You know, if, if there are people who are ready and willing to to listen to what you have to teach, um, then that's great. Then you've got, you know, you've got plenty of people to work with. But if you are consistently running into those situations where uh, you're not able to um, to see uh, a behavior modification plan or a training plan through to the end, if you're consistently seeing that issue, then the problem is probably with you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I think that's a slightly different thing there, but a good point, certainly. You know, if you're not seeing it all the way through, or maybe you're giving up when it gets challenging, yeah. that's a different That's a different issue entirely. Yeah. Um, whereas if you, and I think we've all done these sessions, you know, where you you maybe you go to a house and even normally you can sense it right from the start where <laughs> maybe you have someone that is like they've <laughs> they've brought you into their house and they've they've booked a one-to-one -one, but you know maybe they're playing on their phone yes. they don't turn the tv off yeah and it's like <laughs> why did you hire me <laughs> yes and you know and that that kind of scenario um, brings me back to to Chris Pockle's line of I will work as hard as my client, um, and and that's not quite the same. You know, I, I don't think that I will worry too much about motivating that person. Um, it's it's not my job. I don't see my job as as being uh, the person who needs to hold somebody's hand and drag them into 
uh, into the context where they need to train their dog. That that's not me, and and I've never done that. Um, even when I desperately needed clients to <laughs> to try to pay rent, you know, I, I I've never been that person. But um, but if somebody is uh, you know showing a lot of interest and they're just struggling with succeeding at the exercise I've given them, I've given them. That's more the context that I'm talking about. But the, you know, when I walk into the home and you know the TV's blaring and nobody's really paying attention to me, um, I'm probably not going back to that place. I, I just, um, I, I just don't have, I don't have time and I don't have the interest in trying to convince somebody that they need to uh, to listen to what I have to say. I completely agree, and I also think that it makes a huge difference as to where you get the clients from, because. One thing that I've noticed from putting more stuff out there, like the podcasts, blogs, posting on Facebook and stuff like that, is uh-huh. now I've started to get clients from, uh, say, people that have seen me on Facebook and, and follow my content a bit and maybe want to do sessions over the phone or they, you know, they want to arrange something. And I, what I noticed there is there is a major difference in their attitude or approach to training. And... They, they seem much more committed, maybe because they've already gone out of their way to find information. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not really sure sure the reasoning for it, but I do notice a big difference in that. Um, and I'm, I think I remember, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you're starting to do a lot more online work with people as well now. I am, and I teach online classes um, uh, through the, uh, the, uh, the Fenzy um, Dog Sports Academy which I'll admit at the beginning, I thought uh, teaching online um, can be really tricky. You know, how much information actually gets across and how can you make sure that your students are actually um, doing the work and, and actually learning from you. But I've become a huge fan since then. I, and I, I've become, I've um, started doing more online consultations too, where, whereas in the past I would do, you know, maybe a Skype consultation to answer some simple questions, but I would refuse to do any sort of, uh, you know, problem, deal with any problems that, that should involve um, a lot more in-depth sort of uh, behavior analysis. But I'm actually finding a lot of success through, through online consultations. I think that um, uh, for a lot of people, who are far away and who really want to have a conversation with you talking with them online, um, you know, through, through video consultation. And I can actually show them things through video consultation has turned out to be, uh, to be very successful. Surprisingly, it's very successful. How did it come about that you started working for the Fenzy Academy? Um, Denise and I met, uh, Denise Fenzy and I met about a year and a half ago. We were both speaking at the dog event in France and uh, she was busy working with her students. She had a, a class running at the time. So here she was presenting in France, and then she'd be on her computer uh, answering questions from uh, from her online students and, you know, watching their videos and, and providing feedback. And uh, and I was really interested in, in how all that worked. And, and, you know, she had seen my presentation and was interested in, uh, in some of the topics that I had to present. So we put together a couple of classes, and the first one I did was uh, on separation anxiety, and we were really concerned about how that was going to work online. I mean, we were talking about an issue that that involves a lot of, um, well, first of all, a lot of emotion, but it that is one particular issue that involves a lot of hand-holding um, in a positive way. You know, you have to really um, uh, be there to, to provide feedback for, for your students who are dealing with this issue with their dog. Um, 
and so that when we struck up a conversation and we put together the course and we launched it um, a year ago actually it was launched uh, in August 2017 and um, and I've given it now three times and I'm doing it again October 1st and it's turned out to be um, it's turned out to be a great way to help people so was that like a conversation that kind of came about over dinner or was it like a prolonged email communication or how did that how did that end up happening yeah just hanging out you know we we would walk from our hotel to the to the venue every day which is about a 20 minute walk um and uh and of course dinners and and drinks you know how conferences go <laughs> in any industry. That's where all the business decisions get made. It's during dinner time in conferences and in trade shows, and um, and yeah, so we got to know each other that way. And I and I took a couple of classes too to see a couple of the Fenzi classes to see how that that worked. And and I really enjoy them. No, I'm taking one now. Actually, <laughs> I'm a student in one of the classes now for for um, to build a new website and. Um, and it works really well. You know, if you've got a good platform, it can work really well. I think that online courses are probably going to play a bigger and bigger role as we move forward. Yeah. And they already are. Like, the success of the Fenzi Academy is huge. Like, I've re you know, it really seems to have a very dedicated following. And recently, I've been exploring the kind of subreddits for dog training and, and looking into that a lot more. And, I mean... Uh, the Fenzi Academy is huge on Reddit. It is. It's a really big Reddit following, um, it, which is interesting because they seem to have really um, captured that audience in a way that I haven't seen anyone else do. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I would let Denise speak more about this, of course, but I think that primarily it was the sports dog community. Um, and now we're able to reach uh, more of the pet dog community and more of the training community. Uh, you know, as a trainer, there are a lot of things that I don't know. There are tons of things that I don't know. I don't know anything about sports, um, dog sports, you know, like agility or um uh, or, or obedience and so taking some of those classes for me has really opened up my eyes to this whole other dog community um, and you know just to just to switch up the conversation a little bit talking about online classes um, to to put a bit of a business twist on it um, as trainers we're selling our time and you know when you sell a service um, and you're selling your time there is a maximum amount of time <laughs> in any given day and in any given week. And that can, um, that can really, well, not can, it absolutely does influence um, the amount of income that you can generate. So as trainers, when, you know, we're hustling to try to find clients and try to find the best ways to maximize our income, because, you know, we're running a business, we need to, we need to generate income. Online services as online consultations and classes online, that, that is a really great way to boost your income because you're able to reach a lot more people and generate more income with the limited amount of time that we have. So I think that that's something um, that trainers should consider because, um, well, for, for business reasons, of course, and the ability to reach more people with, with the knowledge that you want to share, it's got to be well done. It's got to be well structured and you have to make sure that you're actually providing the, the, um, uh, knowledge and skills that, that you want to impart with your with your clients but that's something that that I think more trainers need to explore 
That's that's really brilliant advice, and I completely agree. I mean, for the last year or so, I've been on a real business hype. Like I've been reading loads of business books and stuff, and that kind of falls into uh, like Tim Ferriss's Four Hour Work Week kind of uh, philosophy. Which I mean, I love uh, Tim Ferriss's work anyway. He's probably he's well. I've been binging the Tim Ferriss podcast recently, so this is particularly like on my mind. I'm writing this down. I'm not familiar with him, and I'm scribbling this down. <laughs> it's okay. What I will do for people that don't know him is I'll I'll link uh, to his stuff in the show notes as well, and okay. I can send you a link over as well, Nancy. Okay. But one of the questions I did want to get to actually was. When you start doing this online stuff, I think what a lot of people are worried about when it comes to putting themselves out there where anyone can access it is what are other trainers going to think of me? <laughs> are they going to judge me? You know, and they're very nervous about that. So what are your thoughts on that? <laughs> <laughs> well, don't get me started. But uh, <laughs> listen, there is nothing judgier than a room full of trainers. Um it, with the exception of maybe um, a group on social media. I mean, that that can get really judgy. And I think that, huh, you know, it's, it's something that all trainers eventually have to deal with, some sort of uh, criticism or negative feedback um, <clears throat> from other trainers. And that is really, really hard to accept at times. And there are trainers who are really good at, at, um, at sharing positive feedback and, or, or constructive criticism with other trainers. But most of the time, it comes across a, as harsh. And, um, and I don't know, I don't, I'm sure that that's not unique to our industry, but, uh, but it sure is prevalent. And I think that, especially for, for more inexperienced um, trainers or those who are just starting, um, that can just crush you. And if I had just one piece of advice to any trainer who, who is afraid of what other trainers think of them is to remember that the only, the only person's opinion that truly matters is your clients. Um, you know, what do they think of you? How do they think you're doing? Uh, what kind of feedback are you getting from them? Because in the end, that's all that matters is what your client thinks. Um, and truly, that's all that matters. So, you know, if you're able to kind of brush off other trainers' criticisms um, and look at your actual results, how many clients you're helping and what they think of you and whether your business is growing, then um, then that's what we should focus on. Ha, easier said than done. It's certainly easier said than done. I, I completely agree. I do think there is a strange kind of culture within our industry of looking for the mistake yes. you know, like when you, which is really ironic considering that we're in dog training where you're supposed to reward the uh su successes isn't that something yeah. On that. yeah um but people watch videos that people put up and they look for the one mistake <laughs> and then they highlight that they do um, yeah which is very strange. I, I was wondering, though, have you had personal experience of that yourself? Have you have you gone through trainers judging you? Yeah, I, I did. There, there, I mean, in on, in, uh, in many instances, but one in particular stands out in my mind. Um, when several years ago, when when I adopted uh, Chili, a dog that who's since passed, when we adopted her uh, several years ago, she was about two and a half years old. Um, we didn't know her. We, we didn't know her, her personality, really. We were just getting to know her. She'd been in our home for, for a couple of weeks. And uh, she we did notice that she was, um, I, I know that this is not a correct 
term, but she was reactive towards other dogs. You know, she would bark and lunge towards other dogs, but we didn't know what else she might do if she came into contact with another dog uh, that she didn't know because we, we hadn't yet experienced that. So um, I wrote an article about this uh, this incident that I'm about to describe. Um, I wrote the article for the Whole Dog Journal. Uh, no, I'm sorry. It wasn't for the Whole Dog Journal. It was for the um, uh, the CCPDT uh, newsletter. And in this article, I described the scenario where this newly adopted dog that we had was in, in our backyard, which is fenced. And uh, we have a gate that, you know, normally locks <laughs> very well. And, uh, sure. I, and I was in the shower and, um, and my husband had let the dog out. Um, and, you know, and everyone, everyone else will, will relate to this when, when, um, if you have a spouse or a partner who is not a trainer, that can be uh, that can be a, a source of frustration when you ask them to do something or not to do something. Well, anyway, the the general rule was she wasn't supposed to be in the yard by herself, uh, unsupervised until we got to know her better. But here I am in the shower. <laughs> the dog is in the yard unsupervised, um, and suddenly I hear my husband kind of running into the bathroom, saying, you know, mumbling something that I couldn't hear because I was under the shower, but it sounded like an emergency. So, you know, I, I got out, got dressed, and ran outside. Um, the dog had had gotten out, and we didn't know what happened. We just knew that the dog was out. Um, long story short, we got we got her back. She was only a couple of houses down. We got her back, but our neighbor. Um, from across the street kind of came over and told us I saw the whole thing what had happened was a woman had been walking her young um, uh, her, her young Great Dane down the street and our dog Chili has started barking and just kind of slamming her paws against the fence against the gate and with repetitive slamming the gate unlatched and out she ran um, and she went straight for the dog she jumped on the dog got him by the throat for half a second and then let him go, and then she walked away, and that—that's all that happened. Um, so, Incredibly well, irresponsible of you, Nancy. <laughs> well, wait, there's more. <laughs> so, uh, so uh, well, the good thing for us was that we we learned what she would do if she actually did come into contact with the dog. Um, so, our, I asked my neighbor to describe the woman. I wanted to find this other dog, make sure that the dog was okay, you know, that 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 uh, that he wasn't severely bitten or anything, and I wanted to speak to the person. So, as she was describing the person and the dog, my heart was sinking uh, because she was describing exactly one of my students in my group classes <laughs> so oh, um, no. <laughs> yeah. I, went and I, I looked through the list of, of my students in my current group classes and and I call up this person who I thought it was I, I didn't have her address I didn't know where she lived and I called her up and I said um hey th this is Nancy so tell me where <laughs> where do you live <laughs> and she told me where she lived which was the street next to mine and and, oh, and I no. asked her I said hey so were you just walking down the street a minute ago and a dog came running out she's like yeah I said yeah that was my dog I'm so sorry and I <laughs> tried to explain the situation I asked her about her dog her dog was fine a little shaken up but fine and and sure enough th this was a young dog who who was fearful um, so you know it, it didn't help the the situation at all um, the dog was physically fine but you know of course was scared um, I, you know, I never saw her again. She never came back to class and I can't blame her. You know, her, her instructor's dog had just attacked her dog. Uh, but this is the story that I was telling in, in the, um, uh, the newsletter. 
And it, it was just kind of, you know, what I was trying to, to, to share in that story was that things happen and they happen to trainers too. We're not perfect. And, um, you know, as, as good as you think your management is, sometimes these things can happen. It ended well, uh, except that I lost that client, but I was just sharing a story and, um, a lot of other trainers kind of came down on me really, really harshly. Um, and, any sort of positive feedback that I got was all sent privately through private message or through email. Oh, no. They, they didn't want to say publicly that they had had the same sort of experience. They shared their experience uh -huh. privately. They were afraid of the feedback that I was getting. Um, and that was my first real experience of, of having a, a large number of people come down on me like that. Um, and, uh, and it can be, you know, it's punishing. It's very punishing. And I, and I, I had shared something that had happened in, with, colleagues and uh, and it it wasn't received well publicly it was received well privately but not publicly and i think that that's a problem <laughs> i think that that's a real problem with uh, the fact that uh, that we are afraid to share those stories publicly and you know what we should be sharing them with our clients we need to be letting them know that we make mistakes or that things like that can happen to us too and i think that the sharing stories like that with our clients um will help them often feel better about their own situation. It'll kind of help them I, yeah, get rid of expectations. Uh -huh. I have certainly found that I mean, my most popular email, much to my uh, annoyance, because <laughs> I, I regularly email people uh, just kind of like tips and content and stories. And I, I emailed this one story where I had been out with my dogs and it was... It was just kind of like starting to get dark and it was difficult to see very far. And anyway, I let all my dogs off. I couldn't see anyone around. And as I was kind of walking around the perimeter of this rugby field, uh, my little terrier suddenly starts barking and kind of runs towards the hedge. And uh, at first I was kind of like, what's going on? Anyway, I try to call him back and he's not listening, which is bad in itself <laughs> but then i eventually realized that there were some people over there with their dogs on lead which is another uh moment of go well. <laughs> so um anyway so he runs over there and then uh i'm calling him i'm doing my whistle he's still not coming back which is really embarrassing and annoying so i i, I ran over there which by the way as well People won't believe me when I'm saying this. It was literally the first time he's ever not responded to the whistle. Sure it was. Of course. Uh, yes, exactly. <laughs> so anyway, so I run over there and I'm like, sorry, I'm so sorry. Uh, I pick him up. I really I apologize to the dog owners for, uh, you know, for the annoyance. Mm -hmm. And then as I look up, I realize that it's, <laughs> it's one of my clients that I did one-to-ones with. Not oh, no. only that, <laughs> I did one-to-ones with them for recall. <laughs> <laughs> These are the humbling so, moments I'm talking about. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, that was extremely embarrassing. But when I sent out that email um, just saying that the, this experience I had, and funny story, doesn't always go well, very much in the vein of your article, um, <laughs> I guess email is better, though, because it's completely private. <laughs> So people were, uh, but people were emailing me back that they really appreciated that. And whenever I would see, I kept, people kept bringing it up. 
<laughs> you know, people that are on my email list, I would see them in person. They're like, oh, I saw your story about your dog not coming back. I really enjoyed that email. I was like, yeah, that's the one everyone remembers. <laughs> of, course, of course. But, you know, it makes you human in the eyes of your clients. And, uh, and it makes them feel... Uh, not so bad about not achieving perfection. If you if you're not achieving it, then they shouldn't expect to achieve it either. Yeah, and and also I think you touched on a really important point there, where you know people were maybe sending you messages of support privately, but not publicly doing that. And yeah, and um, I've certainly had similar experiences. I remember one of my blog posts, which was kind of like well received in most places, but in one particular group it was shared in they just kind of like started attacking it and then there was just like this group mentality of like you know 30 people just yeah going at it um and someone tagged me in it anyway so i saw it and i've i think i might have responded a bit and just kind of said why i'd wrote it in the way that i had and uh anyway so that was all going on and people were attacking me and then our mutual friend john mcguigan uh, and and he, in his kind of like typical Scottish fashion, basically told them to shut up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and thankfully, uh, once John did that in his authoritative way, um, the comments dropped off pretty quick. <laughs> and not only that, but a few of the people that had been attacking me privately messaged me to apologize. Privately, yes. Yeah, so, I mean, uh, well, yeah. So, I, but I was—I've always been appreciative of John doing that for me. So it's one of the reasons I have a lot of respect for John because he—he he was willing to uh, stick up for me in that yeah. situation. But to, to put ourselves out there um, publicly in in uh, in a. And uh, I say a room full. Of course, I'm describing a usually a social media group, uh, which I avoid. By the way, most of the time I, I avoid those social media groups where um, uh, where uh, training tips are shared or any sort of uh, debate. Or um, I, I, I'm using uh, air quotes here when I say discussions because they usually turn into some sort of debate. Um, where they occur, I, I avoid them because I don't find them constructive. I find them a huge waste of time. I'd, I'd much rather discuss things, you know, at a conference over drinks. <laughs> um, uh-huh. Well, sure. seriously, though, you know, in, in person, people won't say the things that they will online. I mean, that, that we all They're know much nicer. how, uh-huh. how that works. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't find those groups constructive. I avoid them, and I think that there there are much better ways that we could be sharing information, feedback, criticisms, even um, or, or just some some knowledge and skills with, with our counterparts. These are our colleagues. You know, these are people who we all share the same goal. You know, we all love dogs, and we all share the same goals. So I think that there there should be a better way for us to um, to achieve that. Is there an ice cream truck? <laughs> I was hoping the microphone wasn't picking that up. Oh no, now I want ice cream. This is great. <laughs> Conditioned response there. Well, no, in you. well, it's funny because what I was what I was describing was basically a circus online. <laughs> and here's this circus music in the background. It's perfect. It's like I planned it, yeah. Um we just moved house, so I don't know about all of these things. Obviously, there's an ice cream van that comes around. Well, you've picked um, the right neighborhood, obviously. <laughs> well, what you're talking about, though, you know, when you're talking about the article that you wrote, 
um, is this concept, which I know that you've spoken about before, of the good enough dog. Mm-hmm. You know, that your dog doesn't have to be perfect. Yeah. Um, so maybe you can tell us a little bit more about what that is, because I think that put people at ease um, about where they are in their training. Yeah, and um, really the, the this concept of, of the good enough dog um, was something that I wanted to share with other trainers in that um, I think that, you know, besides putting a lot of, uh, of expectations on our own dogs uh, and on dogs in general, I think that we put... Oh, there we go. Starting again. <laughs> we put a lot of expectations on our clients as well. Um, uh-huh. and, and I think that, uh, you know, having had, now I've been at this for, for a little over 10 years now. So I think that I have, um, you know, enough experience to, to, to gauge maybe what, um, what clients expect from a trainer. Uh, uh-huh. I have to, to kind of describe the, what I do though is as I work with, with pet dogs. I work with family dogs. Um, so when I say I'm training a dog, I'm not training him for any sort of uh, service or sport or um, or work. You know, I, I deal with pet dogs. So um, I think that you know, through talking with clients and through learning what they really need, most of the time they don't need what I think the dog needs or what I think the what I think I'm able to do to modify a dog's behavior. Most of the time, the client doesn't need all of that, and I don't know if I'm I'm describing it uh, clearly enough. But um, in other words, if I you know, if a client presents me with, with a problem that they want to solve and I know what needs to be done, I need to first establish whether or not they are able um, and willing to do what I, what I think needs to be done. And a lot of the times, I can just get them to a point where it's good enough. I can get the client to do a, a few things where they feel their problem is solved, even though I know we can go even further. If they feel their problem is solved, then that's good enough. And we've got a happy client and a happy dog. Um, we as trainers sometimes become frustrated with that because we see it as though the client has not followed through with everything that we've said. But again, I think that we need to put the emphasis on listening to, to our client and seeing if they are really happy with what's going on. And if they are, then we're done. Um, and that's what I mean by good enough. That sometimes good enough is is uh, is good enough. It, it's um, it's it's we couldn't ask for more. Uh, we could, but we don't need to ask for more. One of the best pieces of advice that I received when I was working in Spain with Nando um, was never give a client more than three things to do. Mm-hmm. Because I think that what a lot of people do with their clients is they they do what you just said, where they're thinking about, hey, we need to do this, we need to do that, we need to do this calming protocol, we need to do counter conditioning, we need to do all of this stuff. Mm-hmm. And then you either write a gigantic behavior report, which could take someone a year to complete, exactly. or you just give them 12 different things to do. And what happens is it just demotivates people and they don't end up making the progress that they should yes has that been your experience as well uh yes uh and in fact there's been research on this you know that this this idea of giving a client no more than three things to do um there's actual research on this and i think that it was brian burton um i think i hope i hope i've got this right who wrote an article uh for the iaabc journal a few months back um about this he mentions this and and i'm not I'm, i'm not uh uh 
I don't know the, the research enough to, to quote it or cite it, but um, what I do, uh, instead of giving my client, uh, you know, from the very beginning, when I meet them, see what the problem is, uh, you know, analyze the situation and come up with a plan, I avoid giving them the entire plan at the beginning. It's overwhelming. You know, they're already dealing with an issue. They're already, usually, they've reached a boiling point, and that's when they contact you. Um so I think that our job in the beginning is just to kind of put the fire out, just to just to calm things down, stabilize them at the beginning. And once they're feeling better about the situation, um, then they might be a little bit more open to hear, you know, what we have to say <laughs> in terms of, of uh, a behavior modification plan or, or a training plan. So I think that just like we do for dogs, take it one step at a time, break it down to, to really um, small chunks that, that the the client can digest and process. Um, I think that that is a far better approach. And even if something would take us 12 steps and that could take us a very long time to get through all the 12 steps, like I was saying before, sometimes we might get to step five or six and the client is happy. They don't need to go any further. Um, Definitely. And, and that's okay. Yeah. I think that that's okay. And, and I'll be talking about that. I, I don't know if I can, if I can plug this here, but I'll be talking about Definitely. this, this concept do. at the, at the Wolf uh, conference in the UK in February, 2019. So, um, you know, so I'll, I'll be going more into depth about that and in, in how we can approach our, our business that way, how we can approach our work that way that can um, increase, actually increase our business and keep a lot of clients happy, a lot of dogs happy. Well, we're, first of all, just to say, we're, we'll definitely make sure we get that article in the show notes again because I'm, I want to read that because I'm interested to hear that there's research that backs up that because that's definitely been my experience. Yeah. But one other thing I really wanted to touch on before we wrap it up was um, earlier we were talking about how you've maybe made the transition now from working uh, as most trainers do, which is m in this kind of physical presence, to doing more online courses, to doing more online cons consultations. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering how you've made that transition. Um, what do you mean by how I've made that transition? Like, was there a was there a conscious uh, decision to market in any particularly different way, or was it something that came about naturally? Oh, I see. Uh, actually, it did it did come about naturally. I think that um, as more of of uh, kind of my information got out there, I was contacted by people who were far away, people that I couldn't physically go meet, um, you know, and we'd arrange a, a consultation online. And I think it just kind of grew from that when I realized that I could help a lot more people this way, um, you know, w without the travel time. And uh, uh, and some of the consultations can, can last only 30 minutes rather than a full hour or two hours, um, which usually in person, you know, I won't, I won't, um, I'm looking for the word in English, I won't, um, I, I won't travel somewhere for just a 30 minute consultation when really I can help somebody in 30 minutes. I can give them uh, information that can be very helpful to them to at least get them on the right track in just 30 minutes. And that's easy to do online. Not so easy to do if you're traveling, you know, for 30 minutes to go somewhere for 30 minutes. In, in which case, so you've, that transition has happened for you by the sounds of it from you know, uh, speaking at events and doing content creation, is that what you would recommend for someone that does want to make the transition to online stuff? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And, and, and it's, you know, uh, speaking at events is something that, that has also kind of happened naturally. Um, and I don't speak about, you know, 
a lot of the times I don't speak about um, complex training or or science. There are people who are far better qualified than me to speak on, on these subjects. I think that um, you know everybody kind of has a forte, and Ken Ramirez talks about that. Everybody has a niche. Everybody has something that they're really good at in this industry. We can't be uh, you know, everything to everyone, even in this industry, we can, you know, we can be an overall good trainer, but every one of us has a little bit of a specialty. And if you can find that focus on that and, and, uh, and market that, um, you will probably enjoy your work a lot, a lot better, but you will also reach a lot more people because you're, you're specializing in something and people from far away who need your help will be um, more inclined to reach you no matter where they are. They'll be more inclined to contact you to get help if for that particular problem. So you've, you mentioned before that you've wrote articles for the CCPDT, um, the whole dog journal and stuff like that. How did you get into a position where that happened? Were you approached or did you approach them or... How can someone go about getting those kind of opportunities? Yeah, well, writing for the for the whole dog journal is something that that also kind of happened uh, naturally. The the editor uh, Nancy Kearns uh, was a Facebook friend, and I think that I touched on a couple of uh, topics on just you know Facebook posts that she wanted to learn more about. <clears throat> Excuse me, um, but you know these publications are always looking for articles and ideas. So any sort of uh, dog training publication again if you have a niche if you have a, a specialty if you have information you want to share um, these editors are always looking for ideas and, and it's good to uh, um, to hit them up you know to to query to send them an email saying hey I have this article I have this idea do you want to you know what do you need from me um, and um, you know of course you, you need to be you need to be a writer you need to be a good writer and you need to like writing um, but that's um and, and I love to write. That, that's it's what I do. Is what I did before dog training. Um, so that that kind of um, evolved naturally as well. But um, but you you know not everyone needs to be an expert in their field in order to talk about something. As long as you have an idea to share and you can express it well, then I think it's, it's it can be well received by by anyone. That's an interesting point you make as well because I know that you've uh, done a lot of speaking about how to construct communications with clients mm -hmm. um, in, a, in a good way. And I think that that in itself is quite an intimidating concept for a lot of trainers. Um, I certainly noticed that there are a, a lot of trainers that have got into dog training and they're very interested in the practical side of things, but they struggle when it comes to, you know, reading textbooks and writing essays and writing behavior reports and stuff like that. Yeah. So that can be very intimidating for a lot of people. It can, especially communicating with clients. You know, uh, a lot of our work is done through email or, or social media. A lot of our communication, and and it's not all it, it it's not all picking daisies. You know, sometimes you have a um, you have a difficult client, um, and difficult meaning the situation is difficult. Um, a sticky situation they owe you money or they're not satisfied with your services or or something has gone wrong somewhere and you need to communicate with them as trainers um, or anyone who is not a writer anyone who is not 
experience with the business correspondence will struggle with this. But when you're a trainer, you're usually self-employed or you work for a very small training company. And so there isn't somebody who is uh, dedicated to client communication in that operation. You're it. <laughs> you have to do all the communication and we can find ourselves avoiding having to communicate with somebody or really stressing over it. Um, and that's actually something I do. That's part, that's part of my online consultation is that, you know, often it's with other trainers who are struggling with this. Uh, you know, I have, I have this situation. I don't know how to answer this email. And, and that's something that can take 30 minutes. That I do online with, uh, with other trainers. Um, but there, there is there is a particular way uh, that we can communicate with clients. There are certain words we can use, and there are things that we can do to to influence the tone of our communication to help our business. Because it always comes down to that, doesn't it? I mean, we're we're in business. We have to make money to live, and to um, you know, to attend seminars and conferences and buy books. So we always we always have to have our our business cap on. How did you develop that skill? Of writing um, well I uh, before I was a trainer I was in public relations so that that was always my thing I was the I was the public relations writer so uh, the type of writing that I did was um, uh, was designed to be uh, to be influential <laughs> to try to to try to influence people's perception of a company um, uh, so I, I don't know that I ever really learned those skills formally. I think that, you know, writing, writing is a skill. It's also part talent, but it is a skill. Um, and I think that if you can put together, um, certain scripts that you can rely on, uh, you know, if, if you've, if you've been through a sticky situation and you've written something that was well received, keep that, keep that. And you can use, you know, I say keep that, keep that in your files and you can use those words. You can use that. The, the structure that you that that you use in that communication for future communications, and I think that people forget to do that. You can have a you you can have a, a kind of a database of uh, uh, emails or or messages that you've exchanged with the client that you can rely on um, in the future when that issue comes back around again. If that makes sense. Yeah, that makes total okay. sense, and something that wouldn't really you wouldn't even think to do that. I mean, I know that I should certainly be taking that advice because I know that I will write the same email a hundred times. <laughs> you know, uh, yes. if, if, for example, if I do a recall session and then I summarize <laughs> the recall training, yeah. I know I've summarized recall training so many times at this point and I still haven't saved it and just copy and paste it, which is ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, also, also, if you're, if you're dealing with a, a situation that's, that's, that's pushed your buttons, you know, that, that's got your, um, uh, that's got you feeling emotional about something. When a client has sent you a message saying that they are deeply dissatisfied with your service or they're, they're saying something that's making you angry or upset. Um, if you have dealt with that in the past and you were able to keep your, your, vo your voice and your tone kind of calm and professional, um, you're going to want to refer back to that. You, you don't want to respond to that client uh, with a knee-jerk response when your your buttons are pushed, you know. So it, it's good to have that. That's what I meant by having a database where you can refer back to something that was written um, with a cool head so that you're not sending back correspondence to your client where you're getting into an argument with them or your your tone could be a little harsh and unprofessional. 
Yeah, no, I completely agree. Um, Nancy, you mentioned that you're talking at Woof. Yep. Where else can people find you? Where can they hear you talk? All of that good stuff. Um, well, uh, I, I'm doing a lot of local stuff that, that's in French, but the I think the, the next international uh, event will be Woof in, in February. And, um, and and I teach a couple classes for Fenzi. So coming up October 1st is a, um, a class on separation anxiety. And uh, also a, another class on, it's called Feelings Change, and it's, a, it's about how to apply desensitization and uh, counter conditioning. Uh, it's all about the mechanics, you know, the, the how and, and the why and the how. Um, and other than that, I'm, I'm all over the place online. Of course, I'm on Benny's page, Bennigan's Shenanigans, <laughs> which is, uh, it's more for, for non-trainers. It's, it's a page that kind of follows Benny's adventures. And once in a while, I'll post a video, training video on how to do some, some simple stuff for dog owners. Brilliant. Uh, uh, excellent. Well, I'll make sure that I link all of those things again in the show notes. But yeah, brilliant talking to you, Nancy. I really enjoyed this. Thanks. Thanks. I'm sure we bump into each other again at another conference. Or you bet. Especially if you're in England again. A uh, woof. Yes. Yes, I'll see you then. <laughs> All right. Speak soon. Thanks, Nick. Hey, I hope you enjoyed that podcast. If you want to check out the show notes, which is really just all of the links in one place, so you don't have to trawl the internet finding them, then go to nickbenger.com slash nancy hyphen tucker, and everything is in one place there. One other request I have of you is please join the Facebook discussion group. I want to hear your comments. I want to hear your questions so that I can make this podcast better but also give you more of an interactive experience. So to find that on Facebook, just search for Dog Talk with Nick Benger podcast discussion group. As always, the next podcast will be out next Friday. Have a great week until then. See ya.